0: Advertising your business with GCN is simple, effective, and more affordable than you might think. Visit advertise.gcnlive.com for more info. Take your business to the next level.
1: Hello, America. I'm Robert Reese, and welcome back to the CEO Show. We're here today with Jim Keys. How are you, Jim? I am
2: fabulous, Robert. Great to be with you.
1: Absolutely great to be with you. you. You're in for a treat here because... It's seldom that I get a CEO who has run two Fortune 500 companies. And we're going to hear about that from running 7-Eleven and then running Blockbuster. So you've run two very different companies. But I want to start off with something. You recently wrote a book called Education is Freedom. And this puts a whole twist on America, where we're at, what the role is uh, just talk about that what prompted you to write it and your core messages to CEOs
2: sure well thank you it's 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 a it started out it has actually been a lifelong mission to try to help others have the same opportunity that i was able to enjoy i was not one of those kids that was expected to go to college grew up you know relatively uh humble surroundings extremely humble surroundings we might say Um, And yet I found the path, I found the, call it the secret, to navigating the challenges of public school systems, private school systems, college, et cetera, and weaving my way into uh, corporate opportunity. Um, But the same set of skills that it took, and I've characterized them as C-suite learnings to run a major company, are the same set of skills you need as a young person. To succeed in school and so as i wrote the book the target of course was young people because having run two large companies i recognized that you know uh the future of corporate global competitiveness is a strong educated workforce and we're challenged in the united states especially right now along those lines so i wanted a roadmap for students but as i wrote the book i realized this is also a great guide for entrepreneurs, for CEOs, to be able to navigate the difficult challenges of keeping pace with a, a, an accelerating change in the environment.
1: So so based on this, give me one piece of advice to a CEO that they will say from the book, wow, this really resonates with me. Like I will say, I remember when I um, interviewed John Mackey, who's close to you from the founder of Whole Foods, he said, Robert... Every person I meet, I learn from. He is a lifelong learner. The same way Drew Brees, in interviewing him very recently, he said it's about lifelong learning. What is the one message you have for CEOs that they could take? And the message can't be, buy education is freedom. Go <laughs> Of course, that's a great idea. That would that's be good, too, it. yeah. Give me the
2: the real stuff. Well, since they already talked about lifelong learning, I'm going to give you another one. I've coined the expression, I think, I, you know, it's one of these things you come up with something that you think is magical, and then you hope that you're the first one that ever thought of this. But I've come up with the expression change equals opportunity. That acronym, really, as a CEO, is essential. So if I was to distill everything in the book down to one critical message, for anyone, an entrepreneur, a CEO of a company, it's to recognize that change equals opportunity.
1: It's, you know what? I think that that is so true. And people don't see it because that's where the challenges emerge. Do you Absolutely. have an example? Let's say, because this is really leadership philosophy. Do you have an example when you were managing either um, 7-Eleven or Blockbuster where change equaled opportunity?
2: Oh, I have thousands of examples. I've filled the book with examples of embracing change and how difficult it is. But, okay, so here's, yeah.
1: here's where I want to jump in. Sure. So, uh, we'll talk about 7-Eleven in a couple of minutes. Let's talk Blockbuster. So sure. Blockbuster, um, everyone knows the story, and we all know that we learn more from challenges and opportunities, and certainly what you dealt with in Blockbuster was one of the greatest challenges ever. How did change equal opportunity when you had to go through what you went through with Blockbuster?
2: So it's it's multifold. It, it, it is such an interesting, complex quilt of opportunity that we had at Blockbuster that I'll break down two or three of the pieces. And first of all, all of the learning that people think they have with Blockbuster, 90% of it's false. Because everyone jumps immediately to the easy answer, which is, wow, Netflix just crushed Blockbuster because they didn't keep up with technology. Absolutely false. Now, did Netflix do a great job? Absolutely. Reed Hastings and the team over there have a lot of respect for what they accomplished. But the, but the change that was occurring was an even greater opportunity for Blockbuster. When the transformation to digital became apparent, and this is when I joined the company in 2007, it was pretty clear, it's coming. We were approached by the studios, five of the six major studios, with an opportunity to buy a company called MovieLink that they had created. And the reason they created it is they didn't want to happen what has happened to digital rights. In other words, this massive field of players where it's, it's a very fragmented model and no one really knows where to go for the, for the content that they want. Is it on Hulu? Is it on Netflix? On Amazon? On Google? So what we were building is the aggregated model that we would be the repository, just as the stores were, of all content, old movies, new movies, TV shows, it would all be in one place and easily accessed. That was the model we were building. And the studios actually helped us by selling us a company Called Movie Link that we rebranded Blockbuster on Demand. So that was the first. It was opportunity created by change. Clearly, that the coming change from DVDs to digital.
1: Yeah, and, and that is an incredible quote by Warren Buffett. And so so when you look at that, let, let's just talk about. You're talking about leadership a lot in your book, Education is Freedom, You're talking about leadership a lot in 7-Eleven, how you grew that. And I mean, you, you really grew that shareholder um, value increased like 10x or something before it sold to Japanese. Incredible. What are the core fundamental leadership philosophies that you have that were consistent both at 7-Eleven and in Blockbuster? If you had to really, Jim, just boil it down.
2: Yeah, you know, it, it it is interesting how similar those two companies actually were. 7-Eleven was in the convenience business. Blockbuster was in the convenience business. And you think, convenience, they rented DVDs. No, no, no. They were in the convenient access to media entertainment business. So it's really very similar. And it, it required keeping up with change. And my epiphany came at 7-Eleven when we were actually facing bankruptcy. And I went to the chairman of the company and I asked him, you know, should I leave? I'm still a young guy. Should I go somewhere else? We're about to, people are saying 7-Eleven is going to go away. And he gave me great advice. He said, look, our company was started in 1927 as an ice house and somebody invented something called the frigidaire and people didn't need ice for their ice box anymore. And he said, we had to change. We had to adopt change. And so today, this was 1991. We're in the same boat. we were selling beer, cigarettes, soft drinks, but everybody's selling those. So the question is, are we in the beer, soft drink, and cigarette business, or are we in the convenience business? He said, my advice, Jim, convenience will never go away. So if you find things that people need more conveniently, satisfy that demand, you'll succeed. With that, I literally set out To embrace three things one is change was fundamental and that for any retailer it's all about change because what customers want tomorrow is going to be different from what they wanted yesterday you have got to embrace change and lead that change the second is confidence because fear is the killer of most companies people are worried they don't have the self-confidence there's imposter syndrome maybe i can't succeed etc i'm afraid of failure so you've got to overcome fear with confidence and confidence is all about preparation. And the third is clarity. And I, I think it's, um, was it, um, De, uh, Da Vinci, I think that said, you know, the true elegance is taking the complex and making it simple. And it is so difficult for leaders because we tend to be, very technical, and we are so detailed in our explanation of solutions that we forget the need for simplicity. So I've embraced those three things, keeping up with change, having confidence, and clarity of communications especially, both outbound and inbound, listening. Those are the three elements that I think I'd give as advice for any entrepreneur, CEO, you know, or a person trying to improve their life.
1: And there you have it. You've just gotten a PhD in how to be successful. And I think it was Einstein who said, "Make things as simple as possible, just not simpler." We're about to take a commercial break. When we come back with Jim Keys, we are going to find out. To me, right now, this change equals opportunities is the one statement you need to remember. We are going to find out why when we come back, and then we're going to hear how do you start out in small town and become CEO of 7-Eleven back in a few
0: The complete website is shopsupertea.com or call us at 818-984-6100 Monday through Saturday 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. California time. That's 818-984-6100, ShopSuperT.com.
3: Hi, I'm Dr. Joel Wallach, the dead doctors don't lie guy. There's no reason why you shouldn't live to be at least 100 and have a great time getting there.
1: This is Robert Brees on The CEO Show, where we interview the CEOs who have reinvented the fabric of America. We're here today with Jim Keys and the CEO of 7-Eleven, CEO of Blockbuster, um, and the author of the new Education is Freedom. And by the way, after this, not now, then go to Amazon and buy that book. And so what I'm thinking this is you said change equals opportunity. But really, it became pretty evident that that is change is a C, equals is an E, and opportunity is an O. So when you think of the job CEO, it's really change equals opportunity, correct?
2: Exactly. And, and, and to, I, it took me half of my career to realize that. I, you know, I hadn't really embraced the idea that all commerce, if you think about it, go all the way back to the earliest days of commerce, came from someone satisfying a need. And that need often arose from change in the, in the environment. I need to uh, travel to the other side of town. I'm going to sell you some tires or a wheel or whatever it is. Um, but change is constant. It's the only constant in business. And most of commerce results from people being able to adapt to change and satisfy a demand that ultimately was caused by change.
1: So we are going to find out about how you became CEO, but I want to talk about the one concept of reputation, which everyone talks about. And you're in a unique position having managed two, which I thought were very different, but actually now I understand are very similar Fortune 500 Entities and took both to success in very different ways in managing 7 Eleven and Blockbuster. What does the concept of reputation really mean to you?
2: Well, brand is critical. I'm a big believer in the power of brand, and 7 Eleven, of course, is a brand recognized all over the world. Blockbuster, the you know, the um popular culture around blockbuster is amazing i still have people come up to me with their little blue blockbuster cards so here are two brands that uh had true passion around them but you know brand is also carries over to the individual and an individual has a brand your background the where you went to school how you what you studied the resume that you have uh, those are the, the, the more tangible, you know, measurable uh, things that become part of your individual brand. But there's also that element, and I, I, I characterize it in the book as one of the whys of education. Why do we go to school? Why do we have to learn? Well, character is one of those big things. And character... Is a big part of brand so do you have integrity can people trust your word can they count on you and especially in a leadership role that integrity is critical humility the ability to know that you have more to learn so I can sound like the most confident guy in the world but I also have the humility that comes with knowing I have more to learn and that someone I can always learn from is right around the corner And then uh, things like uh, uh, the ability to have compassion, to have gratitude. Um, Those are the elements that make up character that I think are a critical part of brand for both the individual and, ironically, for the corporation itself.
1: Okay, that's an answer. I like it. So let's go into something. You grew up, and it was unlikely that you would become a CEO. Just talk through some of the key steps and what you learned about success and about failure and how they work together to ultimately become CEO of 7 Eleven. I know it worked through golf and everything, so just talk through that.
2: Well, uh, you know, I grew up as as many of us do. And I, you know, one could say, well, he grew up in poverty, he didn't have running water in his house, he lived in a little three room, you know, shack basically when I was growing up in Massachusetts. And it wasn't until many years later that I began to reflect on that and say, you know what, those challenges, that adversity that I had as a kid, actually prepared me for the adversity that you're bound to face in life later on, whether it's your personal life or your career. So here I go off. I found that in my case, education was the answer. It was my escape, both from the reality of my surroundings at the time. It was a good distraction that kept me from worrying about the personal life that I was struggling with. But also, um, it ended up being the thing that gave me opportunity. It opened doors for me that I never would have been able to have open because I did pretty well in school. So I was able to advance, get some scholarships, go on to college, go on to graduate school. Never in a million years did I even dream that I'd be at a, a place like Columbia graduate school of business but i was able to do it and uh and all of that looking back came from that adversity that gave me a level of grit and determination i have a desk a, a, a plaque on my desk today that's a calvin coolidge quote that's persistence and determination are omnipotent he called it press on, press on And he talks about genius and talent and all those things, but it comes down to persistence and determination. And my personal challenges as a child gave me that persistence and determination. Turns out adversity was a gift in in such an ironic way.
1: It's so interesting. I've heard this from several CEOs, but that really ties into your change equals opportunity about adversity.
2: Exactly. No, because companies, you know, I saw it at Seven Eleven. I get to Seven Eleven, and all of a sudden, they did an LBO in 1987. They did it during Black Monday. Stock got crushed. Proceeded with four billion dollars of debt at sixteen at sixteen percent. And you know, it was at that point, it was a matter of time. They couldn't satisfy the debt load, um, and the you know the I'm sitting there saying what's the future? I mentioned going to this chairman of the company and ask him if I should leave. Well, most people in that adverse environment put their head down. They they go home early. They stop working. They start looking for a job. A lot of people bail. I took the opposite approach. I said, you know what? I've come out of other bad situations on top. So I started working harder. And, you know, I ended up coming out of that very awful situation where I thought I was going to lose my job with a promotion. I ended up being named Vice President of Strategic Planning for the company uh, because our division did well during that adverse time, and, it, and I was rewarded for it. So, you know, adversity can actually be an opportunity if, if you look at it that way, just as change is opportunity.
1: And on that note, Jim, I really commend you on your important work and on bringing education as freedom and as a future path for America. Great having you on the CEO show. Thank you, Robert. I really appreciate it. And everyone, let's think of two messages. Number one, your title, CEO, means change equals opportunity. And the second is what we just learned from Warren Buffett, when you're in a challenging time, and we know adversity could be the key from what we've heard from, from Jim, you'd ra- would you rather be on the sidelines or in the game? Just think that. See you all next week.
0: G'day, I'm Jamel that works with Dr. Joel Wallach and the GCN team with Young at teamg'day.com. By becoming an associate, you provide income for you and your family on your own hours while working from home. So contact me, Jamel, by filling in the contact box at teamgday.com, and I will get back to you personally and provide all the support you need to get started and build your longevity business. Teamgday.com. teamg'day.com.
7: Our products do not contain THC. They are safe, non addictive, effective, and 100% legal. GCN listeners, get your free trial bottle of premium CBD by simply paying shipping and handling at gcnfreecbd.com. That's gcnfreecbd.com. Again, gcnfreecbd.com. Offered by Veterans Vitality Premium CBD.
4: Wellness and self care doesn't have to be complicated.
1: Hello, America. I'm Robert Reese, and welcome to CEO Show. We're here today with Dr. Wan Roo, who is the president and CEO of Geisinger. Now, Geisinger is one of the largest healthcare organizations in America with about $8 billion revenue and about 24,000 employees. But you have a different spin on how you approach healthcare from really an innovative financial model Talk about what the organization is first, and
9: then let's go into what you do differently. We've been around for over 100 years. We're uh, in central and northeastern Pennsylvania, as you mentioned. In many of our areas, we span areas that are both semi-urban but also very rural. And so as a result of that, uh, we've had to get pretty creative in how we deliver care. We're Uh, What I love to say is that we have every bit of the ingredients that you would find all across the healthcare industry. We have hospitals, employed physicians and providers, um, clinics, as well as an insurance company, and now even a medical school as of a few years ago. And as a result of having all of those ingredients, we're able to truly innovate and bring different kinds of care models. And, of course, when we insure the same patients that we take care of, We're able to really um, make a difference in terms of moving care further upstream and out of the hospitals, into the homes, into the communities, closer to where people live and work. And when we do that, we know we have the biggest impact on promoting the health of these communities that we serve.
1: So in a sense, you're a model of all of the entire continuum.
9: We like to think so. I mean, we still um, have many things that we think uh, need still a lot of work. Um, but I think we've made a lot of progress, and in many ways, offer up a potential blueprint for uh, things that could help across the country in terms of a healthcare model. When you combine the financing and the delivery of healthcare, you don't have to worry about is something reimbursable or not. Um, we always talk about the example of people who are uh, suffering from diabetes, and maybe it's very difficult to control, but at the same time, they're food insecure, meaning they're not sure where their next meal is coming from, those folks could really benefit from a better diet. And, uh, of course, there isn't a billable code for food, but we know that by delivering that food and teaching them how how to eat better, we know that we're making a big difference on health, and that is the power of combining that financing and the delivery. It really allows you not to be dependent on the downstream sites like hospitals and ERs, and instead moving care and moving services further upstream.
1: And when you talked about that model, which is deeply built into the financial component, which I know you had worked years ago at Kaiser and they were really pioneers in there. How does that tie into the whole
9: concept where everyone wants to go, which is community wellness? I think they're part and parcel of the same effort. Um, It doesn't mean you have to have an insurance company. Um, You could partner with other insurance companies and work together to solve some of these issues. But if you're talking about overall health of a community, it's not just physical health. It's not just getting to physicians, getting to hospitals. It's about food. It's about things that are nowadays known as social determinants of health, whether it's uh, someone's living environment, transportation, housing. Um, We know these things matter, and we know that they're tremendous drivers in keeping people healthy, um, preventing bad things from happening. And uh, we know that the power of bringing the financing and the delivery together really allows you to focus on things. It allows you to bring um, transportation services to folks. It allows you to focus on uh, opiate-addicted mothers who deliver babies who may still be dependent on the opiates uh, from when they were in the womb Um, and helping those moms get back on their feet. Um, These are real programs that we have and that are uh, really made possible by the fact that we bear the financial risk so we have jointly aligned incentives to keep this population healthy.
1: Let's talk about a topic not everyone talks about, but is ubiquitous, which is behavioral health. And I think it's over 20% of Americans have some type of behavioral health that needs handling. And now, especially when we're in a pandemic, it's a time when more significant challenges have come. What is your take on what is being done and what we need to do?
9: Behavioral health is one of these things that are actually very closely tied to physical health. We see that when someone has a behavioral health issue, their physical health also suffers. And so if you're trying to get uh, diabetics in better control, if you're trying to control blood pressure better and folks with uh, hypertension, if you're trying to have better control of someone's congestive heart failure, and they also have a behavioral health issue. We know that that's particularly challenging. Um, this is one of these things where it's a classic example of uh, swimming upstream and getting further upstream to prevent things like subsequent admissions to the hospital, trips to the emergency room, uh, having services and programs delivered in the home, in the virtual environment, or even in the clinics. Um we know that that makes a big impact. I'll give you an example, Robert. We started a senior focused primary care model called 65 Forward uh, a few years ago. It's essentially a concierge primary care model for those that are 65 and older as the name would suggest. Panel sizes that are about a fifth of the size of what you would see in a typical primary care practice across the country. Um The feedback that we get from these folks, you you have all the same outcomes that you would expect to see. You have lower rates of ER use, lower rates of hospitalization. Um, But the thing that surprises some people is when you see the patient feedback, they talk a lot about how it addresses and helps them with their loneliness. We know that this is a problem with folks that are 65 and older, and in the front of these clinics... We create wellness spaces where they have programming like art class, yoga class, fitness instructors, uh, something that might even look like a coffee shop and snacks and it becomes almost like a community center where seniors come and congregate and they may or may not even come to see their physician. I think that's a great illustration of what can happen when you're addressing physical health in a way that also addresses some mental health or behavioral health uh, challenges, in this case, loneliness in seniors.
1: I commend you on a tremendous um, uh, program like that. Uh, you are sort of known as the hospital that doesn't want you in the hospital. Talk about that philosophy.
9: It's absolutely right. We spend a lot of time and energy being building programs that actually move things outside the hospital. Partly, it's just a more affordable way to deliver healthcare. And given the areas that we serve, we know that that's important for employers, it's important for communities, it's important for people in those communities um, when we're able to prevent um, the downstream effects that may land you in an emergency room in a hospital um, and instead focus on upstream prevention, instead focus on services in the home, instead focus on services in the clinics. It also happens to be more convenient for people, and people are happier when they can get their care that way. And so you have a business rationale. It's more affordable. You have a clinical rationale because you're preventing bad outcomes of disease. But you also have a a community satisfier and a patient satisfaction rationale because it's more convenient for people to be getting care outside of these environments.
1: What, What types of things, as a truly innovative health organization are you testing out? Are you now saying as the world is changing and saying, we're going to test this out, we're going to deploy it, we're going to see where it works, so you have a sense of what the future might hold?
9: Well, the 65 Forward is a good example, but there are a couple others. So we have a program called Geisinger at Home, which we also started a few years ago, but have continued to expand the scope of this program. And what that does is it takes the sickest of the sick, probably the sickest 3% of our population, and it moves services and care coordination programs into the home. Um, These are folks that have a tough time getting around, so mobility is not something working in their favor. Um, And so when it becomes challenging to move the patient, we're moving the care to meet the patient where they are. And uh, the, the part that's more of a testing and expanding that's going on right now is continuing to expand the services so that it's downright acute care uh, types of things that you would ordinarily see in a hospital um, being moved into that home environment. And we're finding, especially with COVID, um, that we're able to do more and more of that and preserve our hospital capacity for those folks that truly are uh, at a level of sickness that they uh, really require being inside the hospital. I think that's a neat program. The other one I mentioned uh, briefly earlier, we have something called our Fresh Food Pharmacy. It, it targets uh, food-insecure folks. Initially, it was just with diabetics. Now we're expanding that and testing it um, to include other conditions that are diet-sensitive, whether it's kidney disease or congestive heart failure. We know that... Um, What people eat matters a lot in those clinical conditions. And by expanding the program, we're also testing whether there's an adequate savings in the total cost of care to make these programs sustainable. Um, Because imagine a world where you might have it baked in as an insurance benefit, where they cover food and housing if you're in a specific kind of vulnerable state. I think that's the future that we all aspire to. We're not quite there yet as a country
1: and that's really that's really the goal improving quality lowering costs and we're about to take a commercial break on the radio show right now when we come back we're going to talk about the interesting model you have which has both rural and urban and how you serve marginalized populations back in a few
6: let me tell you a story about bill bill was a normal guy in his 50s he had back surgery about two years ago bill was in a lot of pain He dealt with his pain by taking the Percocets his doctor prescribed for him. Bill took more and more and more of them to help with the pain, until one day the prescriptions weren't enough to get rid of Bill's pain. Then one day Bill found someone to help him get rid of the pain with illegal drugs he didn't need a prescription for. Fast forward to today. Bill lost his job and his family. The only thing he does have is his drug dealer. If you know Bill's story and you don't want to end up like Bill... Call the Detox and Treatment Helpline right now to get away and get treatment. 800-296-1327. 800-296-1327. 800-296-1327. Call right now. Help is standing by. 800-296-1327.
10: If you're concerned about the power grid and want to generate your own supply of off-grid electricity, this will be the most important message you'll hear this year.
11: At Social Security, we are always thinking of ways to save you time and make things easier. That's why we created My Social Security. Opening a My Social Security account gives you secure access to your personal record and interactive tools tailored for you. You can see if you are eligible to receive benefits, view spousal benefit estimates, and compare retirement benefit estimates at different ages or dates when you want to start receiving benefits. Already receiving benefits, use your account to change your address, set up or change direct deposit, get a proof of income letter, and more. In most states, you can also request a replacement Social Security card. Save time. Go online. Open a My Social Security account at ssa.gov myaccount my account. Social Security. Securing today and tomorrow. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense.
1: Hi, and welcome back. This is Robert Reese on The CEO Show, where we interview the CEOs who've reinvented the fabric of America. We're here today with Dr. Wan Roo, and you were talking about the model that you had, and you were dealing with both urban and rural. What is your take on best practices for serving marginalized populations, which is a critical issue these days?
9: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. If you look at um, underserved or vulnerable populations, whether they're vulnerable because they're more elderly, they're vulnerable because they're more sick, they're vulnerable because they live in tougher communities that have seen better days, or maybe they're vulnerable because they have multiple chronic comorbidities and are recently out of a job. I mean, you have many different uh, types of folks that we uh, have the privilege of serving and I think what that requires is um, really uh, one, one size can't fit all. And, and we've said many times that uh, over the last several years at least, we've been trying to add more flavors to the ice cream store. We know that plain vanilla primary care doesn't serve the needs effectively uh, for some populations. And so 65 Forward, our senior focused primary care, is a good illustration of a primary care model specifically geared towards seniors. Uh, similarly, the program I mentioned earlier, Geisinger at Home, it's specifically catered to those who have multiple comorbidities and struggle because they're uh, really the sickest of the sick. At the same time, we have other models like our FQHC lookalike model, federally qualified health centers that resemble community clinics and wrap together social services for those who um, are Medicaid populations. So these are some examples. We also have a Life Geisinger program, which is for the frail and elderly to keep them independent and out of institutional environments. But these are all examples of different flavors. And I think you have to have a model that accommodates and recognizes that different people uh, come to you from different places. And as a result... You know, what we've tried to do is build clinical programs and capabilities and really try to meet people where they are as opposed to forcing the square pegs into the round holes that we may uh, develop in these big campuses, which would be more of your traditional kind of healthcare environments. We have those too, but we think the future, if you're taking care of many different kinds of populations, is to really build these programs and meet people where they're at.
1: How do you know where the future of healthcare will be?
9: I think the short answer, Robert, is maybe you don't quite know, but uh, the more adaptable your system is, the better prepared you are for whatever the twists and turns are in the journey. I do think, though, that it's becoming more and more clear that it's not going to be sustainable and affordable uh, to have healthcare be in a very institution or facility centric, hospital centric environment. I think consumers of healthcare, all of us are consumers, we're way too focused on things that are convenient for us. And, and people don't think. That coming to hospitals is the most convenient way to attain their health. And so the more services we can offer, whether it's virtually, of course, but also being able to deliver things closer to the communities, in the clinics, in people's homes, I think that will be the future of healthcare.
1: Let's talk about you personally. Now, I've interviewed I don't know a thousand CEOs and and dozens and dozens um, leading healthcare organizations. I don't remember anyone with your exact background where you're a JD, you've been in government, you've been in regulatory, you've been on the payer side, on the provider side. You're even a practicing physician as well. Uh, talk about your whole background and and what drove you to create such an integrated type background.
9: I forget which, I think it may be an old Indian uh, proverb about the blind men touching the elephant. Um, I've always thought of that when just hearing you describe it. I think I've been lucky over the course of my career to be many of those different um, folks touching different parts of the elephant. And I think when you touch all the different types of or parts of the elephant, you start seeing how all the pieces come together. I, I can think of no better example than in the ER itself It's where primary care meets specialty care. It's where uh, sick people meet folks who aren't quite as sick. It's where insured meets uninsured and and Medicare meets commercial insurance. I mean, all roads kind of cross in the ER and being able to see where the system sometimes gets broken, uh, which leads to sometimes people landing in the ER for their care I think that combined with um, being able to work in several of the environments that you talked about, I think that's really informed my understanding of how the different pieces fit together. Healthcare, it's like one of these industries where you would never, no one would ever design it the way that it currently is. I think it's just kind of been one of these creatures that have evolved over time. And as a result, it's unnecessarily complex for all of us um, and definitely for the patients. And so I think the more familiar you are with how the pieces fit together, I think the better shot we have of coming up with the right solutions.
1: And if you were to redesign it with your background, what would be the future of healthcare?
9: I think payment and delivery. We have so many payment silos. You know, um, here's what's billable through a hospital. Here's what's billable in the outpatient through the provider or through the physician. Here's the drug component. Um, We mentioned one of the silos earlier. We talked about behavioral health, and and for a variety of reasons, that's been carved out and separated from physical health. Our experience at Geisinger has been that when you integrate these things and and break down those silos, people do better. Um, Physicians talk to each other more. Uh, It's more coordinated with what else is going on in a patient's life. It's more coordinated and takes into account their social uh, dynamics and, and what may be the broader contextual environment in which they're living. I think we have a better shot when we combine all these things, which kind of leads me to a long-winded answer to your question. I would combine payment and delivery where the risk is borne by those delivering the care. And, and then they could truly focus on somebody's health, not have to worry about, you know, is this banana billable? If someone's going to benefit from a banana, give them a banana. Um, if someone's going to benefit from cooking lessons, give them the cooking lessons. I, th- I think that's where um, healthcare may have um, unnecessarily siloed itself and fragmented itself.
1: Was there a conversation earlier in your life that you had with anyone? Could have been one of your teachers, professors, your mom, your dad, a, a manager of yours, anyone conversation that led you to develop your philosophy.
9: There were probably many of those conversations, and I've been lucky over the years to have a lot of really uh, wise counsel and wise mentors. And I think some of the themes that they've advised me over the years have been pretty consistent. One is to follow your passion, because you can't fake it for long enough if you don't follow your passion.
1: And there you have it. We've been speaking with Dr. Wan Rue and everyone think about in healthcare integration back to home but in any industry you're in if you want to really serve customers think about getting more flavors in your ice cream store great having you on the
9: ceo show thanks so much robert we all have heard
1: about the benefits of fish oils but what about the presence of heavy metals pcbs dioxins Furons, and other contaminants found in fatty tissues of fish. GCNteam.com recognizes this risk and offers IFOS certified tested omega-3 fatty acids. EPA, DHA insist on IFOS omega-3 fatty acid certification. Get the best at GCNteam.com or call 877-878-4203.